If you have a Bible with you, I'd like for you to open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're in chapter 8. And if you're taking notes this morning, you'll see there in your, uh, in your outline for, to, for today's sermon, what we're looking at today is true discipleship. True discipleship, John chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 31 through verse 38. And we're, today we're looking at the subject of true discipleship. The Apostle John writes this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Lord, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning as we want to look at the words of Jesus, and we want to understand with greater ability what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. Thank you for giving us your inerrant word. Thank you for the teaching that we get to hear today from Christ. I pray, God, that you would draw us in close for an, for an up-close look at what discipleship is all about. Bless us today as we learn these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I believe that there is a great crisis of discipleship in the church today, particularly in America. The simple observation of the lives of most professing Christians are not that much different than those who live in the world. Like ancient Israel and periods of church history, I believe that so many today profess Christ and yet know Him not. When you see the church adopting the beliefs and the values of the culture, you know something is wrong. And although there are exceptions among individuals and congregations, they only serve to confirm the reality. The reality, again, is discipleship is in crisis. And this sad situation is bringing reproach on the name of Jesus Christ and undermining the, the credibility of the church. And it's strengthening the atheistic rhetoric and it's bringing, bringing frequent charges of hypocrisy against God's people and His work. It stands in the stark contrast with the teachings of Jesus about discipleship and the witness of church and what it should be and what it should look like in the world today. And a significant part of our problem today is a widespread misunderstanding about the nature of discipleship. Jesus began his public ministry with the simple message of repent and believe in the gospel. And in these first words of Jesus, which are recorded in the gospels, we see an emphasis of turning from your sin and turning to Christ. And we see an element of active trust and dependence on Christ alone. And the message of the gospel is a message of conversion. And when someone comes to Christ, there is a real change that happens in a person's life. You cannot come to Christ and stay the same. You cannot come to Christ and still love the things of this world. 
And when you come to Christ, he changes a man, and he changes a woman, and he changes their heart, and he gives you a passion to follow him with all of your desire and all of your energy. Your whole trajectory changes as a person. And while becoming a Christian is filled with freedom from guilt and from shame and from your sin, and while you do have a joy as a newborn Christian that surpasses all others, and while being a Christian does provide purpose in your life and direction for your soul, Jesus also teaches that conversion and discipleship is the beginning of a long journey for his followers. And to proceed on that journey, we need clear instruction on how to live as disciples of Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught the life-changing truths of humility, purity of heart, faith, prayer, love of your neighbor, and radical obedience to all of his teaching. And on a number of occasions, Jesus told his disciples and the crowds that followed him that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This teaching of Christ on true discipleship reminds us that on a daily basis, we must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross and we must follow him. And if you want to gain the whole world, then you will lose your soul. But if you're willing to lose your life for Christ's sake, and if you're willing to forego worldly pleasures for Christ's sake, and if you're willing to pursue purity for Christ's sake, if you're willing to resist temptation and to run to Christ, you will be satisfied and you will receive eternal life. What is a true disciple? A true disciple is one who lives out what he or she says they believe. A true disciple has a lifestyle that matches their convictions. A true disciple doesn't just profess Christ, but they possess Christ in their hearts. A true disciple has put new wine into a new wineskin. A true disciple has experienced that old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. A true disciple not only proclaims Christ's words with his lips, but he lives out Christ's words with his life. A true disciple is one who does the will of God. A true disciple is a word-driven follower of Christ, a word-centered adorer of Christ, and a witness-focused evangelist for Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, are you a true disciple? I didn't ask you if you like Christian music. Do you enjoy Christian movies? Though I sure enjoyed watching, I can only imagine this weekend. I didn't ask you if you wear Christian t-shirts. What I asked you is, are you a true disciple? The question is not, did you grow up in a Christian home? The question this morning is not, do I attend a Christian school or do I even go to a Christian church? The question I have for you this morning is, are you a true disciple? You say, well, Adam, what if I am a follower of Christ some of the time, but I still follow the world as well? You might say, well, I'm, I'm about halfway there. 
I haven't fully committed just yet. I mean, I'm not a fanatic or anything like that. I don't want to be accused of being a Jesus freak. Well, Jesus has an answer for that type of thinking. He says it to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, when Christ says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's no halfway with God. There is no, I'm on the fence with God. There is no partial commitment to the Lord. Jesus died fully so you and I can fully live. Jesus' sacrifice was total so that you and I can live in total for him. Jesus loves you completely so that your life is completely lived for him. Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Christ? This morning, I want to give you three headings that will help us better understand how to live as true disciples of Christ. Three headings. The first one is this. Let's look at the definition of true disciples. The definition of true disciples, your first blank this morning, abiding in the Word of God. Abiding in the Word of God. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon from John 8, 21 through 30, entitled, Without Christ, You Will Die in Your Sins. And that title came from verse 24. Look at it. John 8, 24. When Jesus said, I told you, you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And I ended that sermon a couple of weeks ago by saying these five things. Only through the cross can you know that Jesus is the Messiah. And only through the cross can you know that Jesus is fully fulfilling his Father's will. And only through the cross can you experience God's presence. And only through the cross can you do the things that are pleasing to him. Only through the cross can you truly believe in him. And then if you look at verse 30, that ended last time we were together, the sermon here where we read, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, just looking at that on the surface level, it seems like, oh, great, a lot of people are listening to Christ and becoming believers, and yet we learn in this passage today that they're not. We learn in this passage that though many believed in him, that there was not a genuine belief in him. The Bible clearly warns us that not all faith is saving faith. Not all who seem to believe sincerely believe. And so we see Jesus now confronting these so-called believers with their unbelief. In fact, look down at verse 34 where Jesus says to these believers that they actually are practicing sin as slaves to sin. Look down to verse 42 that we'll get to next time where Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. Look down to verse 30, or back up to baby verse 38, when Jesus says, you do what you have heard from your father, 41. You do the works your father did, 44. You were of your father, the devil. It's abundantly clear here in John 8 that these who believed didn't really believe because so many of these, Jesus is saying, are of their father, the devil. And so we clearly see that those in verse 30 are the same as those in the rest of the passage. The Jews who said they have believed do not have genuine faith as these later verses clearly show. And this is where we pick up again 
here in the middle of verse 31 when Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's the first part of our definition this morning. And what does it mean to be a true disciple? Abiding in the word. Now, this word abiding, this word to abide means to remain. It means to stay. It means to persist. It means to last. Maybe if you have an NASB, you see it translated as it means to continue, to continue at times. And so the idea here is that someone who's abiding, they're thriving in Christ. They're staying right there where he is. They're not moving to the right or to the left, but they're sticking close to Jesus. And the most profound text, I believe, in all the Bible that really helps us see what it means to abide in Christ is John 15. So turn ahead a few chapters to John 15, where we see this very famous passage that helps us understand this with greater clarity, where we read this in John 15, starting in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And all the way down to about verse 11, he goes back and forth saying, you must abide in me and I will abide in you. If you're not abiding in me, you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. If you are abiding in me, you're going to bear a lot of fruit. And I think this really gives us a very clear illustration in nature, as Jesus so often does, particularly in an agrarian culture of the first century. And maybe that reminds you of some stuff that you studied in physical science called xylem and phloem. Remember that stuff? It's in every plant. And what it is is it transports water and minerals from the roots up to the leaves, and then the leaves, as they create food via photosynthesis, transport that food down to the rest of the plant. All of my science teachers out there are like, yeah, that's right. You got it, Tyson, you're on it. Well, look, this is the same thing that we're talking about. It's a back and ebb, it's an ebb and flow. It's an up and down as we're abiding in Christ, and he's abiding in us. It's talking about we're tapped into the vine. We're in the vine. If you get cut off from that, you can't live. And this picture provides us of what that means. It's a two-way flow. You have xylem and phloem. You have us abiding in him and him abiding in us. It takes both for this to really work in the way that God intends for it too. And so this picture that we're looking at of abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us is shown beautifully in that agricultural illustration. And what does it mean that we abide in Christ? How do we abide in him? Well, we abide in Christ by meditating on his words. We abide in Christ by meditating on the beauties of the deity of Christ and all of his attributes. We abide in Christ by adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. We abide in him by listening attentively to his teaching. We abide in Christ by treasuring his word in our hearts above all else. We abide in him when we ascribe glory to his great name. We abide in him when we adore Christ with all that we are. We abide in him when we walk with Jesus, when we depend upon him, when we cry out to Jesus every moment of every day. At the same time, Christ abides in us. It's an overwhelming thought, really, because so many times we place the emphasis on, I need to be in him. But don't forget this, he's also in you. 
He abides in you. How does Christ abide in us? He holds you tight. He, he will hold me fast. Nothing will ever snatch me out of his hand. He will never leave us or forsake us. He indwells us. He empowers us. He fills us with his love and his wisdom and his might. He strengthens us every moment of every day. Jesus feeds us. He shepherds us. He rejoices over us. He delights in us. Not just us abiding in him, it's him abiding in us. We see this same concept illustrated again in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Remember that? You invite Christ in, you sup with him, he sups with you. You fellowship with him, he fellowships with you. And oh, what food does he provide at the great banqueting table of the Lamb? Oh, what to think about the fact that he spreads a table for us to share of his sustenance. He provides for us. I don't know about you, but I like the thought a whole lot more of me going to his house for dinner than him coming to my house. The idea here is that this is Christ abiding in us. Abiding in Christ means that you have fellowship with him. It means that you're in communication with him. It means that you're bearing fruit. It means that you obey him, that you keep his commandments. Abiding in Christ is the very definition of discipleship. It is not just something that you say with your lips, but it's something that you live out with your life. Another part of the definition of a true disciple, in addition to abiding in Christ, is knowing the truth. Your next blank there, knowing the truth. Notice how verse 31, as we look now even at verse 32, tells us that, and you will know the truth. So first, you're abiding in his word. Secondly, you're knowing the truth. This word know not only means to be aware or to have knowledge of something, like in a general sense, but it also lexically means to grasp the significance of something. The big difference is just kind of know what 2 plus 2 equals 4 and to have the significance of what that means as it plays out in your life. And the idea here is that knowing him is not just having the facts, but it's grasping the significance of the facts. It's having a full understanding. It's having an extensive comprehension of what's going on. This is not just knowing about the truth. This is knowing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we're not abiding in something mystical, something that's undefined, some higher power. We're not living by chance. No, we are abiding in Christ. And as we are abiding, we are his true disciples. And true disciples know the truth. They know it with certainty, and they know it with clarity. They know the truth with passion, and they know the truth with conviction. They know the truth because it has been revealed to us by Christ. You see, knowing is a gift. You don't just become a knower by studying. You can study all you want, but you don't become a knower until God in his sovereign grace rips the scales from your eyes and inserts his word and his son into your heart. It's a divine revelation. It's Jesus saying, I am the way, 
I am the truth, and I am the life. Only through Christ can you discern truth. Only through Christ can your mind be instructed and your heart be directed. Only true disciples really know the truth. Do you remember how Jesus discusses this with his disciples when they're out on a little retreat in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus looked at him and said, what? But who do you say that I am? Do you remember Peter's answer? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response, he didn't say, Peter, well done. Good job, buddy. You must have been studying the Old Testament for a long time to finally see all of the prophecies point to me. That's not what he said. What he said was this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It requires divine revelation. Truth must be revealed by God, and yes, he does it through his word, by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the truth is you must know that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. In order to be a disciple, you must have that knowledge. 1 John 5.20, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. True disciples have true knowledge. And we get that true knowledge from God, not from the president of the United States of America. We don't get it from the media that we listen to. We don't get it even from Fox News. We don't get it from Hollywood. We don't get it from polls or opinions. You don't get it from your mom or your grandma. You get truth from the word of God, and it must be revealed to you by God's sovereign grace. We must look to Christ. True disciples, they know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In fact, that's the third aspect of this definition of true disciples. Not only are you abiding in the word, not only are you knowing the truth, but you're living free. You're living free free. Look at there again at the verse 32, and the truth will set you free. This word free means to be set free from domination. It means to be released. It means to be exempt. It means to liberate. And Jesus says it again down in verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. These unbelieving Jews and unbelievers today are not free. They are in bondage. They are in bondage to sin. They are in bondage to ignorance. They are in bondage to the law, in bondage to their error, and they are in bondage to superstition. And the true disciple is free, free from sin, free from enslavement to the world, and free from legalism. Listen to how Paul says it, the apostle in Romans 8 Verse 2, you already know verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the law of God's justice. The law of sin and death is that basically according to God's holiness, if you can't keep that perfect standard, you die. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. That's the law of sin and death. But in Christ Jesus, 
you don't die and you're not condemned because of Christ we are loved and because of Christ we are forgiven and because of Christ like the song that we sing oh our sins they are many but his mercy is more so the law of the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death and Jesus came that we may have life and have it more abundantly Listen again to 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You are free from this law of sin and death. You are free from legalism. You are free from trying to please anybody else ever as the ultimate trajectory of your life. It's to please the Lord. It's to live for Him. It's to honor Him. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's a freedom from sin and a freedom from the failure attempts to keep the law as a means of our justification. The Holy Spirit frees us. He indwells us. He empowers us to overcome evil of any kind. You understand that today, Christian? You are free from death. You are free from sin. You are free from the law. You are free from fear. You are free from tyranny. And you are free from your own self. Sin has no power over you. You're in Christ today. You are free from sin's penalty. You are free from sin's power. And you are free from sin's persuasion. You are free. And why have you been set free? To glorify God. To find your joy in obeying Him. You've been freed so that you can be a better disciple filled with the spirit of the living God, loving him and obeying him with all that you are. You're not free to become a slave again. And Paul discusses that in Galatians 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's really shocked that these Galatians would see Christ and the freedom they have in their justification, and yet then they started to try to get into some type of legalism in their sanctification. And when Paul shows up, he's like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. The same grace that frees you into a relationship with Christ by grace and not by works also is the power that frees you into the Christian liberties that you have, not to flaunt them but you don't have to do all of this stuff in order to live free. Don't become a slave again. Don't, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Listen also to 1 Peter 2.16. Peter writes, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So there is a reminder, you're free, but not to do whatever you want. You're free, but not to exercise Christian liberties to the hilt to which you then begin to bring uh, condemnation, in a sense, to the weaker brother. And so the idea is, is that you're free, but you're free to serve God, and you're free to live for Him, and you're free to obey Him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your sin. You're free not to look at pornography anymore. You're free not to drink to a drunken state anymore. You're free not to somehow be a, in bondage to that anymore because as a disciple, you're free. And praise God you're free. Praise God that a true disciple is not saved by grace and then yoked again to slavery. No, a true disciple is saved by grace and they're free forever. A true disciple abides in the word of God. He knows the truth and he lives in freedom. Are you a true disciple this morning? Now that we've seen a good definition of a true disciple from this text, let's now look at 
the deception of false disciples, all here in verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Let me show you three parts here of a definition of a, really the deception of false disciples. The first is this, A in your outline says a focus on the external, a focus on the external. First of all, this is almost a bizarre statement that they say here when they say that we have never been enslaved to anyone. It's like, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you would say, what, what do you mean you've never been enslaved to anyone? Don't, don't you remember you were enslaved to Egypt for 430 years? You remember all the time that they, Pharaoh broke your back because you had to build bricks with straw? Do you remember that? Not only were they enslaved to Egypt, but they were enslaved to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the Medes, to the Persians, to Greece, to Syria, and now they're slaves to Rome. So what do they mean? They've never been enslaved to anyone. That is certainly not true physically or politically. So they, they must have meant that we're not enslaved to anyone spiritually. You see, they're in bondage and they don't even know it. They don't even know that they're in bondage because they don't, they don't understand their, their only claim to freedom is this external attachment to Abraham. Notice again, their response, you know, they could have said, Jesus, thanks for teaching us how to be a disciple. Thanks for teaching us it's about abiding. Thank you for teaching us it's about knowing the truth. Thank you for teaching us that we're free. Instead, they get offended at him, and they just throw out, you know what, we have Abraham. We have Abraham. There, there's no mention of faith, no mention of repentance, no mention of substitutionary atonement, no mention of God's grace, no mention of mercy, no mention of their hearts and their beliefs in God. There's no mention of imputed righteousness. They simply throw down what they perceive to be the trump card, and they say, we've got Abraham. Other places, we have Moses. But Jesus is saying, no, no, it's about the gospel. It's about grace. It's about Christ. It's about the fact that you need to repent of your sins and not try to earn your way to heaven. We've got Abraham. We've got Moses. Let me tell you something this morning. Abraham never saved anybody. Moses never saved a single soul. The old covenant doesn't save anybody. External obedience to the law saves no one. Your ethnicity does not get you to heaven. Turn with me to Romans 2. Romans 2, 28 and 29, where Paul zeroes in on this topic, just reminding us in the midst of Romans 1 through 4, the glorious gospel, he reminds us here in Romans 2, 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Here in this context, he's using that word Jew to mean a true Jew, a true believer. He's saying no one is a Jew who's just one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What he's saying is, guys, stop claiming to your ethnicity with Abraham and Moses and the Old Covenant. Understand that to be a true Jew, one that's spiritually born again, it's got to happen inwardly. It's got to happen in your heart. It doesn't happen by removing flesh from your body. Circumcision is of the heart and moving unrepentance from your heart, the things that you haven't repented of, out of your heart and being filled and flooded with the gospel of freedom and of grace. You must be regenerated by the Spirit. You can't reach out 
to your ancestors is a decent argument. You must be born again. Unless you are born again, you will die in your sins. You must look to Christ and not to your heritage. You must look to Christ and not to your family. Listen up, children, this morning. I was a kid who thought I was saved because my mom and dad talked about Jesus. And my personal testimony is I thought for sure I would go to heaven because mom and dad took me to church and read me the Bible. And it wasn't until one day as the scripture was shown to me that I was on my way to hell, a place of judgment and torment. And yes, that's a scary thought, but it's the truth. You're not saved because you come to this church and you're not saved because your loving Christian parents talk about Jesus. You must repent and believe. You must look to Christ and not anyone else. You must look to Christ. Otherwise, you're a false disciple, all of us, because if we tend to focus on the externals instead of on the heart, we're false disciples. Not only that, we see another definition of a false disciple be a denial of reality, a denial of a reality, part of the reality is here that they had been in bondage to many other nations, as we've already mentioned, but part of the reality is, too, they didn't know they were in bondage to the Old Testament law. They thought that was a good thing to hang on to that as a means of saving grace, and it's not. And so, not only were they in bondage to God's law as a means of salvation, but to their own law that they added to God's law and treated as God's law. They would hold on to the, the more minor parts even of the law as Jesus confronted them to their faces in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus never says the little things in the law don't matter. He says, don't get so lopsided that all you do is focus on the little parts of the law and you forget things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They were in bondage to legalism. They thought they could please God and earn his favor and his forgiveness, not only by keeping the law, but by adding extra precautions to the law that would definitely put them over the top. Their doctrine of salvation was heretical. They focused on the jot and the tittle of the law instead of on the intent of the law, which was to be a tutor to lead them to Christ. This is exactly why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You ever thought about the context? Is He's talking to Pharisees who are actually trying to keep the law as a means of their justification. And he said, uh-uh-uh-uh, stop trying to do all the externals. Wake up to reality. That will never save you. You can't keep it perfectly anyway. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so instead, if you're tired and weary of trying to find justification by law-keeping, he says, come to me. Come, come unto me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The whole point of this familiar passage is to say it's time to get off the treadmill. 
It's time to stop trying to be perfect in your life with your own effort as a means of saving grace. Your legalism can never save you. Only Jesus can give you lasting rest. Only Christ can make your yoke easy and your burden to light, your burden light. So let me invite you as he does in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come, come unto Christ today. Come to him if you're weary today. If you think you're saved by your work, see it's all about his work on the cross. Won't you accept the fact that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. A third deception of false disciples is this, a confusion about true freedom. They're confused about what it means to be truly free. This confusion exists because they don't know they are in bondage. This confusion exists because they believe they are doing all the right things. And unbelievers think that they're doing the right thing, but they're not. Roman Catholics think they're saved if they are trusting in the sacraments as a means of grace when they are not. Jehovah Witnesses think they are born again, but they don't believe Jesus is fully God. Mormons think that they are Christians, but they put more emphasis on their own works of obedience than they do the grace of God through Christ. And these Jews thought they were free, but they were really in bondage to legalism. And almost the opposite is true of our antinomian culture today, anti-law. Today, it's almost like a lot of us aren't legalists. We're a little bit in the culture, at least. It's too free, where there's no moral authority. And our culture believes you should be able to do whatever you want. Nobody can tell you what to do or what not to do. Our culture doesn't want anyone telling them that what they're doing is morally wrong. For example, many people today would say that a woman could have an abortion right up until the time that she's supposed to give birth. In fact, I heard somewhere recently that in the United States of America, if a pregnant woman were to be driving to the abortion clinic and hit by a drunk driver and lost the baby, that the drunk driver would be accused of manslaughter for killing the unborn child. But if that woman was not hit by the drunk driver and was allowed to pull into the abortion clinic, she could walk right in and have the abortion done, and it would not be against the law. We live in a world that's upside down. We live in a world that has no sense. People don't know what type of bondage they're in. They think that's freedom. They would say, give her choice. That woman's free to do whatever she wants. And yet, that kind of thinking shows the bondage that we're in, whether it's a bondage to the law or a bondage to hyper-freedom that the Bible never gives authority to. So when the Bible says that we're free, he's saying that we're free from sin and we're free from the law and we're free to serve God and we're free to serve others, not ourselves. That's Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do you believe that you're called to freedom? I do. I know we're free in Christ, but why are we free? We're free to serve God and to serve others. We're not free just to take a nap on the couch all day, every day. Once in a while is fine. We're not free to live a life on vacation. 24-7, right? We're free to serve God and serve others. The freedom God gives to us, he expects us to be stewards of. And you take that freedom and you turn it into discipleship. 
And discipleship is clinging to every word of Christ and obeying his every whim in his power, not, not out of the treadmill mindset, but of the filled with grace, thankful to be a Christian, thankful to be adopted into the family. How can I serve you today, Lord? How could I serve my church today, God? How could I serve my wife and my husband and my kids today, Lord? It's all about serving you and serving others. That's what discipleship is all about. And so we've seen the definition of a true disciple, the deception of false disciples. Let's now take a little bit of a look at the difference between the two. The difference between the two. Your first blank here says, the slave to sin does not have eternal life. The slave to sin does not have eternal life. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. So here he's saying, if you practice this sin, that means in an ongoing way, consistently, habitually, if you practice this sin, then you are a slave to sin. If you practice this sin, it means that you are regularly and consistently walking in sin, that it has become the pattern of your life. And not only that, you're not even repenting of it. You don't even want to repent of it. It means that you don't really care to change in certain areas of your life. It means that it has become a habit. And I'm not talking about the burger joint. It's become, a, it's become a habit in your life, and you keep going down those paths over and over and over again. He's saying that if you're practicing it in that way, then you're a slave, and you're a slave to that sin. And if you're a slave to that sin, verse 35 says, you will not remain in the house forever. That means you will not have eternal life. You will not experience the common grace of God forever. You won't even be a part of Israel forever because there were certain benefits that were given even to ethnic Israel. And he says, none of that really matters. None of that really matters if you're a slave to sin. If you're a slave to sin, then you are on your way to hell. You say, well, Adam, my goodness, everybody struggles a little bit. I get that. But if you have the mindset of practicing sin in this way where you affirm a few pet sins in your life and you start to think that God understands that these pet sins in my life are part of who I am. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That may be how a person without Christ thinks, but Christians are confessing their sin and they're fighting their sin and they're repenting of their sin and they hate their sin with a holy hatred. The condition of the natural man is far worse than you could ever imagine. The condition of the man without Christ is abysmal. It is worse than disgraceful, dreadful, and deplorable. The man without Christ is dead to the things of God, but alive to the things of this world. The condition of the natural man is shameful, pathetic, and rotten. It is worse than being stuck in quicksand. It is more dire than being thrown out into the ocean and you don't know how to swim. It is more terrible than being in the midst of a raging forest fire with no escape. Man is a fallen creature, totally depraved, with no goodness in him for this, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
Isaiah 1.5 says that the fallen man is struck down, continues to rebel, and his whole head is sick and his whole heart is faint. James 1.8 says he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Titus 3.3 says that a depraved man is filled with foolishness, he's disobedient, he's led astray, and is a slave to various passions and pleasures. 2 Peter 1.14 says that they have eyes full of adultery and they are insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed, and they are accursed children. Ephesians 2, 2 through 3 says that they are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and are by nature children of wrath. Colossians 1, 13 tells us that the natural man is completely dominated by Satan's power. And here in John 8, 44, Jesus tells us that he is a liar, and he fulfills the desires of his father, the devil. So the natural man is doomed. But if you are in Christ today, right? so many verses in the Bible, but God, if you are in Christ today, you are no longer a natural man. You are a supernatural man. You now have Christ living in you. You have an inner man that has been awakened to the things of God and you love him and you long for him and you are an overcomer and you are a victorious warrior <coughs> because you're a true disciple of Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you're free in Christ. Thank God for the freedom that he gives us in Christ. The next blank there says the children of God are free and live forever. In the middle of verse 35, in contrast to the slave that does not remain in the house, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This passage is talking about how the slave of sin does not remain in the house forever because the slave is not a true part of the family. The slave of sin has no inheritance. The slave of sin may come and go over time. The slave to sin receives no spiritual life, but the adopted sons and daughters of God remain in the house, and they remain in the family of God, and they receive all the blessings of God and all the inheritance of God. Paul illustrates this in the book of Galatians. Turn there quickly. I know we're getting close to the end here, but I just want you to see this, and you can dig down on it a little bit later because it's a beautiful illustration. In fact, I want to say this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Gospels, the four Gospels, are Christ's teaching. The epistles oftentimes take Christ's teaching and give us further and deeper insight. One seminarian professor told me that the epistles are commentaries of the Gospels. And if Christ is teaching about the free man and the slave man, then it may be here that Paul is elaborating with much greater detail here in Galatians chapter 4 about the son of the slave and the son of the free woman. Galatians 4.21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, by one a slave woman and by one a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Verse 28. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are of the free woman. Now, what does all that mean? In short, Abraham had a wife named Sarah, and she was free. He also was given a second wife, if you remember, named Hagar, and she was a slave. He had a son of promise or freedom named Isaac, and he had a son of bondage or slavery named Ishmael. And Mount Sinai, or the law, represents bondage or slavery, while Jerusalem and the crucifixion of Christ on Calvary represents freedom and the covenant of grace. And only those who have been set free by the Son of God are free indeed. So if you're here today, you're born of this slave woman, that means you're still stuck in your own slavery. But if you're born of the free woman, it's just simply an allegory saying you're free in Christ. And if you've been set free, you are free indeed. There, you never have to look back to any type of bondage to anything ever. Because if you're free, you're free indeed. You're free completely. Listen to Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace Christian, wake up. You need to believe that today because some of you believe that you're still in slavery to your sin and you're not. It doesn't have dominion over you. In Christ, you are not under the law but under grace. How about Romans 6, 18? Having been set free from sin, you've now become a slave of righteousness. Romans 6, 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This is what we're talking about. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. You have eternal life forever. Thank God for the freedom He gives. You are not a slave to sin, but a slave to God. And that means that this week, when that sin rears its ugly head again, that you've given into time and time again, you can say, this week, no, 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 no. I'm a son of the free woman. I'm free. The Son has set me free. I am free indeed. Praise the Lord for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. You can submit to God. You can resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Believe God's Word. Have victory this week with besetting sin or a tendency for legalism, or an over-practice of your Christian liberty. Walk in freedom this week. And remember that last blank there, it's not about your physical lineage, but your spiritual lineage. We'll dig into that more next week. As Jesus here says, if you're a son of Abraham and you're not in Christ, then you're really a son of the devil. More on that next week. I want to end with this quote from J.C. Ryle in this passage. Quote, let us never rest until we have some personal experience of this freedom ourselves. Without it, all other freedom is a worthless privilege. Free speech, free laws, free political freedom, commercial freedom, national freedom, all these cannot smooth down a dying pillow or disarm death of its sting. 
or fill our consciences with peace. Nothing can do that but the freedom which Christ alone bestows. He gives it freely to all who seek it humbly. Then let us never rest until it is our own. Are you looking for that kind of freedom today? I hope that you are. As you leave this morning, I want you to consider these three simple questions. Are you a true disciple? As you examine your life through Scripture this morning, do you see the grace of God working in you to where you cling to Christ? Are you abiding in Him? Is He abiding in you? Second question, are you using your freedom well? You're a steward of the freedom God's given you. And are you using it to serve him and to serve others joyfully and in his strength? Third, does Christ's word find its place in you? There in verse 37, he says, look, you might be of Abraham, but you're still seeking to kill me. So therefore, last part of verse 37, my word finds no place in you. Would Jesus say that to you? My word finds no place in you? Or would he say, when I look into your heart, I see you abounding in the word of God as you meditate on scripture and as you thrive in your abiding in Christ, for that's what it means to be a true disciple. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help today as we all know how frail and feeble our souls can be at times. And yet, God, we need to be undergirded and we need to be built up in the faith, and we need to be encouraged today by these words from the Lord Jesus Christ, that if the Son of God has set you free, you are free indeed. Well, we want to not only believe that, but we want to live that today, and so help us to abide in Christ. Help us to know the truth. Help us to live in the freedom that you give. God, help us to hold that in perfect balance, as we want to not exploit our Christian liberty in a way that would lead back to sin. Neither do we want to hang on to the law with all of our might. We want to hang on to Jesus. We want to see Christ in all of his glory and enjoy all the freedoms that Christ gives us so that we may be more faithful servants to serve you, to serve our fellow man. Would you do a work of grace in our hearts today? Fill us with proper perspective today of what it means to be a true disciple and then may we go out from this place today ready to worship and adore our Savior every minute and to serve him faithfully with all that we are. For you are worthy of all praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.